Welcome to the Sacred Wheel podcast, where we talk about creating a world of beauty, peace, and justice while living within the sacred cycles of the turning wheel of life. I'm your host, Allison Carr. I'm a professional acupuncturist, energy worker, witch, and teacher of magic, living in the unceded, occupied territory of the Tanana Athabascan people of what is now known as Fairbanks, Alaska. You can find me online at allisoncarr.net or patreon.com slash allisoncarr. Welcome to this next episode, dear listener. I am so excited because I get to share with you my good friend, extremely talented writer and uh, very accomplished through hiker, Carrot Quinn. Carrot and I met, oh, probably way back in 2004 um, in a group punk house I was living in in Portland, Oregon, and Carrot came and graced us with her presence for a while, staying in our basement, and uh, I sort of have always had a soft spot for Carrot, and um, you could say that that's when our mutual affection and friendship began. Carrot spoke to me recently about her novel that she's written called Through Hiking Will Break Your Heart. Um, she's also working on a new book talking a lot about uh, events that happened in her childhood and also um, through hike. Uh, Train hopping, thank you. Those are the words I'm looking for. Train hopping that she did um, in her early 20s, around the time when I first met Carrot. Um, we spoke while she was uh, in Tucson, Arizona. So without any further ado, I, I'm so excited to introduce you to Carrot Welcome. Thank you so much, Carrot, for being on this podcast. I'm so excited for this conversation. Uh, will you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do and where you are and that kind of stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Allison. I'm really excited to be here. I, my name's Carrot Quinn. Um, I'm currently living in Southern Arizona. Uh, I'm a long distance hiker, so I've walked across the country three times and did some other stuff. And I'm also a writer. And uh, I wrote a book about my first hike of the PCT called Through Hiking Will Break Your Heart. And I have a blog where I write a blog post every day of every hike I've ever done. And um, I also uh, do some stuff around the border, the U.S.-Mexico border in Southern Arizona. So I do some volunteering with humanitarian aid. And um, uh, I write about that a little bit, too. And yeah, uh, I think I think that pretty much sums me up. That sums you up. Um, you have a little bit of your writing that you agreed to read for us. Do you mind reading that now? Yeah, yeah. So last summer I did this cool trip um, with my friend Bunny, and we actually uh, got to hang out with Allison in yeah. Fairbanks, and Allison hosted us, and it was incredible, and let us use her house to um, pack all of our free supply boxes into a million things. But um, so we uh, spent some time in Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, and we also paddled the No Attack River in Western Alaska. And I wrote about it on my blog at carequin.com. And I'm going to read a day from Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Cool. Thanks. I woke in the morning that felt like 2 p.m. and boiled water for tea, setting my stove as far outside the vestibule as my arm would reach so that I didn't have to actually get out of my sleeping bag. I ate granola and protein powder milk as freezing sleet alternated with gentle hail outside. It was so cold out there and still snowing, and the night I had repurposed two gallon Ziplocs I used around my feet yesterday as bags to pee in so I didn't actually have to leave my tent. Now I sat up and knocked more ice and snow off the walls of the tent. Finally, I had to poop, and I discovered once outside that the world was incredibly beautiful. Undulating ridgelines, patchworks of white and green, a big, cold, clouded sky. I checked the forecast again on the inReach. The snow should stop falling soon, and tomorrow it would be warm up to a balmy 40 degrees. Buddy and I 
decided to hunker down for a few more hours in hopes that the storm would in fact peter out. I scooted all the way down into my quilt, dragging my phone after me, and listened to podcasts. I mended the hole in my glove and the one in the back pocket of my pants with dental floss. I texted my partner, Muffy, on the inreach. I updated the forecast a dozen times. Finally, at 1.45 p.m., we packed up. It had grown a shade warmer, and it was barely snowing. We had three-season gear. We could hike in this weather, but only for a little while and only if we were careful. I rinsed out the pee bags and pulled them back over my feet, closing the tops around my ankles with a hair tie. These would keep my feet from reaching level nine on the pain scale cold while we were crossing Joe Creek again and again in the falling snow. We set out, headed west this time, back towards the landing strip where we were dropped off. Our traverse had officially begun. The mountains were breathtaking, blanketed in new white. Hiking warmed us and soon I felt great. I slept last night because I almost always sleep great in nature, but terribly in town. We were in one of the most epic wildernesses on earth. My feet were wet, but not terribly painful. We walked on the gravel bars or on the tussocks. The snow fell gently around us. The sheets of off-ice, and I actually don't know how to pronounce this word. It's A-U-F-E-I-S. Okay. Um, But it's the ice on rivers and creeks that stays through the summer in the Arctic. Sort of like, and it's very blue and very thick. The sheet of off ice we walked on yesterday was even more beautiful today. The icicles on its edges sparkled. Now and then the ice rent itself in two with a boom. It was wild to be walking out here in what felt like winter. Winter in the Arctic. But in the summer, I wasn't expecting that at all. We reached the airstrip where Kirk dropped us off and sat in the cold wind eating snacks before continuing on for a few more miles, now up a tributary of Joe Creek. The ground was tussock swamp, so we ascended to a ridge and walked on higher, less swampy tussocks with a view of our entire icy kingdom down below us. It was hard to conceptualize all this, being an Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, hundreds of miles from the nearest road or human settlement in a wilderness so intact as to be incomprehensible. The real wonder of it would, I figured, set in later. Tonight, the temperature was supposed to drop to 28 degrees again, and we could already feel things cooling as we stumbled among the tussocks looking for a flat spot to camp. At last, we found a spot on a saddle, and we pitched our tents in the snow. I dug a little hole in the earth down to the frozen tundra and set my alcohol stove there, hoping the heat of the stove wouldn't melt the tundra further, making the stove tip and spill my dinner. While I usually carried an alcohol stove on hikes, we planned on bringing canister soaps for this trip to save a bit of hassle in an environment in which no gear must ever malfunction or break because town is not just a thing. It's just not a thing. But bringing the butane canisters for the stoves on bush planes was a huge logistical hassle of its own, with each air taxi having its own regulations, processes, and fees around them. So we went with alcohol in the end. It took many tries before my alcohol stove would light. Alcohol didn't like the cold, it turned out, but then the fuel finally caught and I set my little dinner on to cook and gathered tannin-colored water from a tussock hole, freezing my hands in the process. And then I was in my quilt eating hot noodles and all my layers as the wind howled in the river drainage below and everything was right in the world. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. So that, that was, I, so I, I got to be privy to a lot of the um, ups and downs of that trip. So that was, that was pretty early on. That was like, what, day two? What did you say? Day two? Day three? Yeah, I think that was day two. Okay. <clears throat> Do you want to give our listeners a little um, sneak peek into how that trip ended for you? Yeah, yeah. So you can, um, if people want to go, if people want to read the whole thing, you can go to carequit.com and I wrote a post for every day. Uh-huh. Uh, it's under the tab that says Alaska 2018. But the, the gist of it is that we had planned this route across the, Alaska, the entirety of the Alaskan Arctic and the Brooks Range. And <clears throat> it was going to take two months. And I know a few people who've done that traverse. And so they helped me plan. So um, I had to make the route myself because uh, there's a tradition, a tradition of not sharing routes in the Arctic because if too many people walk the same path, it can damage the tundra. Yeah, for a long time. And also that preserves sort of the, I don't know, there aren't very many places in North America where you can walk in such intact wilderness. And um, so uh, challenging people to make their own routes if they want to go there sort of helps preserve that. It's part of the adventure. So we made a route. And um, normally in the summer in the Alaskan Arctic, it's like pretty sunny and hot and dry. And uh, that was the experience of 
the people I know who done this traverse, that was their experience. And when I'd gone up uh, into the Berks Range for a week in 2016, that had been my experience. It had been like 80 degrees and sunny every day. And we were sort of counting on that, like things just, you know, they dry up a little in the summer. It gets less, it's not so swampy. But last summer, when we did this traverse, uh, the Alaskan Arctic had, according to our pilot, the worst summer weather he'd seen in his 35 years of flying in the Arctic. So, wow. <laughs> um, yeah, it uh, never really stopped raining, never really stopped snowing at higher elevations. Um, the river crossings are usually the most dangerous part of a traverse of the Brooks Range. And last year, because the water was so high, they were really dangerous, like so insane. And so we did the, so the first part of the trip was walking and the last part of the, the trip was this paddling of the Noachak River in Western Alaska. And we bailed on the walking part after 11 days because the weather was terrible and the rivers were just so dangerous. And uh, my hiking partner hurt her ankles and she had to get off. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll do it myself. And then I realized that I just wasn't physically strong enough to cross these rivers solo. And the stress of it made the trip not fun and really dangerous. And um, I was like, you know, I'll do this another year. So we got off the walking part and we skipped ahead to the paddling part. And that was incredible. And so I wrote about that too. I'd never done any sort of paddling or boat stuff. And it was really, really fun. Um, So overall, it was cool because we got to spend 11 days in Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which felt incredible. And, um, and I got to see this part of Western Alaska, which felt really incredible. And I might try to do the whole traverse again one summer when mm-hmm. the weather's better. But mm-hmm. we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. I'm struck as you're reading that by um, kind of just all the extremes. So you're peeing in bags and then you're putting those bags on your feet and your feet are freezing. It's hard to get your stove to light. And then you're describing that moment when you get your hot dinner as like you're as happy as you could be. Like, can you talk a little bit about the extremes? And like, I, I think for me, one of the questions is like, why, why do you do this, Carrot? Why do you do this? And is that some, <laughs> well, some of that part of it? Yeah, I think, I think that if, I, if we had really known what the weather would be like, like even our planet, you know, there was a winter storm warning for the area we were being dropped off in the day he was going to drop us off. Uh-huh. And we asked him, we were like, Kirk, there's a winter storm warning. And he's like, you know what? Never look at the forecast. That's what he told us. And uh, he even he thought that the weather was going to turn at any moment and there was mm-hmm. going to be a normal 80 degree sunny Arctic summer. Mm-hmm. So we had planned our trip with those conditions in mind. So we didn't have the right gear mm-hmm. for the conditions we ended up in. So if we had known that we were going to be hiking in snow and cold rain every day and we were going to be walking through a swamp because everything was going to be flooded, Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't have done the trip because I wasn't actually prepared for those conditions. And I actually would not choose to hike in those conditions. Mm -hmm. Um, So the question is, I don't actually, (laughs) the answer I guess is, um, I, I don't really intentionally put myself in a situation like that. Like most hikes you do will have some bad weather. Uh-huh. but I wouldn't intentionally go on a hike that just had bad weather every day. Yeah. Um, but, but every, most hikes, every hike does have some bad weather. And so when that happens, um, it does just help put everything else in perspective. You know, you suffer a little bit. Um, there's this thing called the fun scale or, and you've probably heard of it where type one fun is something that's fun in the moment. Uh-huh. Type two fun is it's not fun in the moment, but it's fun in retrospect. Uh-huh. And type three fun is it's not fun even in retrospect. Oh. Uh, maybe it's like a little low-key traumatizing. And so I love type two fun because it's hard, but it's not so hard that you aren't like enjoying it deep down, you know? Yeah. It's just hard enough to be challenging. And so on most hikes, you'll have, um, you know, I like to hike in a sort of season and with a sort of gear that, you know, you'll have, some suffering enough to make it fun but not so much to make it miserable yeah um and and so so that's what it does it's like this challenge but you know I really have to be up for the challenge like I have to feel good and have to have the right gear and you know have to have enough food etc etc um or things can start to edge into type three fun like when bunny hurt her ankles and got off the route and I was 
um, faced with crossing. So there were streams that in normal years would either be dry or would be small enough to just jump across. There were these huge raging brown rivers, like pushing boulders downstream. Mm -hmm. And those were like tributaries that I wouldn't even have to deal with normally. So to say nothing of the rivers that were normally high. Um, and once I was facing that alone, it became type three fun. And I was like, I'm getting off this route. I'm not going to do this. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, and then we, the, the boat part was solid type one fun. It was just great every day, all day. Um, the only type two fun on that was the last night we had three grizzlies come into our camp because the salmon had started running and we were, and the rangers had told us that, you know, the, the grizzlies wouldn't be a problem until the salmon start running and then they really will be. And we were like, Oh, I wonder what that means. And then, the, the salmon started running the last two days of our trip and the grizzlies just appeared and they weren't scared and they were everywhere and they were like circling my tent and they were like fucking with our stuff and we were like we got to get out of here these bears are not scared of us mm -hmm. um yeah yeah so I think for me it's a balance of like just a just enough type two fun to make it exciting to make you appreciate your noodle dinner yeah totally yeah um so I noticed, so I, I've known you for a while. Um, and when we first met, uh, you were coming up to Alaska to do quite a bit of seasonal work. Um, and it, it, I know you grew up here for part of your life and Alaska has kind of just been uh, a theme that I've noticed in your life and in your writing and in these trips, of course, these trips you've taken are, uh, you know, of course it's going to figure heavily when you're up here, but can you talk a little bit about, you know, Alaska and what it's meant for you and you know yeah yeah um Alaska means a lot to me um I don't live there now and in my 20s I would work there in the summers and now I just visit but I grew up there I was born and raised in Anchorage and I lived there till I was 14 and the the Alaska of my memory is very different from the way I experience it now when I go there because I grew up um, really poor. Uh, my mom is schizophrenic. She's actually a homeless person on the streets of Anchorage and I haven't seen her in 22 years. Mm. Um, and I, I, I'm pretty sure for some years I didn't recently, I didn't know if she was alive. And then I heard occasionally she'll like call a family member. And so I heard from an aunt that she had talked to her in the last couple of years. So I think she's still alive. Um, and I grew up, we were homeless sometimes. I spent two years in foster homes. So what I, the world I grew up in is very much, um, there's a lot of poverty in Alaska and there's a lot of poverty in Anchorage. And um, that is the world, that is the Alaska I saw growing up. So, um, you know, we didn't travel, we didn't camp, we didn't do anything. We were just struggling to survive. And I, I basically just didn't have parents. Um, my dad disappeared when I was four and I never saw him, uh, never knew anything about him or where he was or anything. And um, so, you know, I grew up just trying to survive in these like low income apartment complexes in Anchorage, just starving. And um, my brother and I would like dumpster food and we would steal food and we had like free school lunch and um, we didn't have often, we didn't, we wouldn't go to school and we, uh, I just like we're trying to survive. Um, yeah. And that was a really, it, it was like a really kind of, um, that's like one side of Alaska and that's the world I grew up in. And um, yeah. And so, yeah, that's, that was that. And then in my twenties, I um, started going back. The first trip was actually when I was, so I left when I was 14, my grandparents adopted me and I lived with them for three years. And then I moved out on my own when I was 17. And when I was 20, I um, found my father uh, just using like a people finder website, you know, his address is just listed. So I just Googled his name and um, I'd never known him. And I always been like, oh, maybe he's dead or in prison, like some reason, you know, that he wouldn't have like paid child support or been around. And it turns out he was living in Anchorage down the street from this um, apartment complex where we lived for four years. And so I was 20 years old, so I hitchhiked to Alaska um, with my boyfriend at the time, and I uh, just knocked on his door. I didn't have his phone number or his email, so I didn't contact him beforehand. I just knocked on his door, and he answered. 
And I had this really naive idea of like, oh, he's going to want to be friends. He's going to be really curious about me. He's going to ask me all these questions. He's going to want to have a relationship. Um, you know, I was like, oh, I'll have like this parent, like I'll have this like family because my I don't have other relationships with my blood family, like my grandparents and I did not get along there. Yeah. Really conservative um, Catholics who think women shouldn't go to college. Like they blocked me from going to college after high school and we don't talk like they don't even have my phone number. Like I there I have no blood relatives who I am in any sort of regular contact with. So I was like, oh, my dad, you know, I have a dad. Yeah. And he lives in this really nice house and has all these really nice things. And I remember he was watching football when we showed up and he put it on mute, but he didn't turn it off and he has this wife and he was just really freaked out that I was there. And I mean, of course now I understand like he was probably really nervous. Like he has a whole life. He never paid child support. He was like, he was probably like, what does this person want from me? He didn't know what my intentions were, but he basically was really uncomfortable that I was there and didn't want a relationship with me. So we never developed a relationship and he, mm-hmm. um, I was like, well, will you tell me more about my side, of, your side of the family? And he was like, nope. And so, oh, um, wow. I know some things about them just from, you know, the Google, the Google deep dive. I know that his mom lives in San Francisco and I know that I have an aunt, but I mean, I don't know them. I've never met them. I have no contact with them. Um, they have no relationship with me. So that, was my first return to Alaska when I was 20. And I was like, all right. And then um, I really missed Alaska. I grew up, so I didn't really have parents growing up, but I, uh, I spent a lot of time in the woods. Anchorage is a city, but you know, it has like a lot of forests and creeks and the salmon spawn and it has bears and moose and there's mountains around it and the sea and you can hear wolves howling. So I, I spent a lot of time as a kid, just like kind of running around feral in the woods in Anchorage and I developed a real like spiritual connection to the boreal forest that feels like it um, feels like the boreal forest was like there for me when I was a kid in yeah. uh, a way that family wasn't like, I feel, I felt like really nurtured and held by that. And um, I missed Alaska and I wanted to move back. So I started working there in the summers in my twenties. Also I was living in Portland and back then there were no jobs in Portland, at least, right. for, you know, there was no like shit jobs you could get. And so I would go to Alaska and get a seasonal job. And then I would write in the winters and like live off my savings and just live super cheap. And, um, a lot of friends, lots of friends hosted me like you, Allison, um, you used to live in this house, the ramshackle. And I would like stay in your basement room a lot and be like, Oh, Hey, can I like sleep in your basement again? Um, and, uh, that was basically how I, because I was always traveling and I would just sort of like mooch off my friends a lot <laughs> and then like need not like, so then I like didn't have to work very much and then I would go work in Alaska, but I would pick a different part of the state every summer because I'd never explored when I was a kid and I was sort of looking for a place I'd want to live and also looking for a queer community because I was like, oh, I want to move back to Alaska. And then one summer, I think 2009 was the last summer I worked up there and I spent a summer outside Fairbanks and finally met some queers, you know, like five of them, four or five, and had a really great time. And I was like, this place is amazing. But then I sort of had this realization that um, I didn't, I couldn't tough it out in Alaska um, because it was too isolated for me Mm. from queer community. And um, also the darkness would be too hard for me. Yeah. So so then I was like, ah, oh, I'm not going to move back to Alaska. But um, so now I just visit and try to um, try to have a relationship with it in that way. And it sort of, it definitely like looms large in my um, heart. Yeah. You <laughs> and talk a I lot. Have, um, oh, go ahead. Oh, go. Oh, the other thing is um, I might be coming up this summer. I'm not totally sure, but I want to, I want to try to find my mom. Um, which is actually surprisingly hard to find a homeless person. It's sad how hard yeah. it is. Um, but I want to, I tried a little bit last summer and I want to maybe try more this summer. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. There's um, just for listeners that want to hear more about this. Um, there's a, some beautiful passages in your book um, through hiking will break your heart where you, you go into your childhood a little bit. And then I know you're working on a, a new book, right? Yeah, so I just finished the second draft of my new book, which is 
Congratulations. Called the sunset route. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Um, it's about my childhood in Alaska. So I'm writing a lot about my mom. Um, the book deals, I didn't really realize it when I was writing it, but then my editor was like, oh, this book deals with grief. And I was like, yeah, I guess that's true. So it deals a lot with grief, um, just grief around um, like just how much growing up, like both experiencing uh, neglect and also, and abuse and also like knowing how much my mom was suffering and yeah. how much she would always suffer and just like experiencing that grief and feeling powerless. And then um, in my twenties, I rode a lot of freight trains and um, it was sort of this time where I um, had such mad anxiety and the only way that I could sort of soothe my anxiety was by constant travel. And so I just like traveled. I hitchhiked to Alaska a couple times and across the country and rode freight trains across the country a couple times. And so I write about that. And the book sort of is me riding freight trains while grappling with um, these larger issues from my childhood around um, grief and my mom and, you know, these questions of the human condition that have no answer. And, um, uh, and I'm often staying in that, in the book, I'm often staying in the basement room at your house. Oh, <laughs> yay. That I, that I say that. The ramshackle lives um, on. At the ramshackle, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah, so I'm writing a lot about that right now. And that book, I'm not sure when it's going to come out. Um, the original agreement, um, the, what we talked, what I talked about with my editor is they talked about the summer of 2021, um, which seems like a really long time to me, but I guess traditional publishing is, that's just how traditional publishing works. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. There's no, there's no like exact date, but hopefully it won't take too long to actually coming, come out. <laughs> coming soon. Yeah. Not so soon. Um, do you, so I'm noticing as you're, as you're talking about a lot of this stuff, there's some fairly heavy, heavy subjects that you're talking about and you tend to do it with a smile and you tend to do it with a joke sort of as if it's type two fun. Um, is right. Do you feel like writing is your way of dealing with, with those things that are often kind of hard to talk about and hard to bring into normal conversation? Like, do you feel like writing is part of how you process that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I, I laugh when I talk about um, traumatic stuff. It's sure. a coping mechanism. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's what I do. Um, uh, yeah, I think, I think, you know, I think there are just these questions for me, these questions of the experience of human embodiment that just like, that don't have answers and it can make things feel really wildly out of control. Mm -hmm. Like, and I think with writing, I can put this order into my experiences of yeah. the universe. And it makes it feel like, I think on some level, it makes me feel like I have control. Like I can tidy up, I can make things into a nice story and um, make, and I wonder like how much of all of our creativity is to that end. Like we, sure. you know, we feel like, we have such little control and for me, creativity is definitely a way to feel like I've, yeah, it just makes me feel like I have some control. I can take something really dark and um, if I can make it into a story that's like a beautiful story, then I feel um, it's like comforting. I, I don't really know why, but, but yeah, it's really comforting to do that. No, that makes perfect sense. You know, they talk a lot about trauma being disorganizing like it's essentially sort of disorganizing to us as, as humans. And um, I think writing and creativity can be a, a real organizing um, force. In our yeah, life. totally. And we, it's, it's interesting too, because I feel like so much of creativity is about patterns and rhythm. And it's like, we're taking something and trying to make it into a pattern yeah. and make it into something orderly and make it something tidy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it like makes us feel better. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel better after writing? Like you've probably been hashing through a lot of your childhood. Do you emerge from like a writing, you know, you get up for, I don't know what your writing practice is like, but when you finished writing a piece, do you 
feel better or do you feel worse for having slogged through it all? Um, when I write about my childhood, it makes me feel really bad. Does it? <laughs> um, yeah, I get like really triggered and uh, uh, my anxiety goes way up and I like will get digestive issues and I won't like sleep well. But then, but then when I'm writing about uh, like my 20s, when I'm writing about riding freight trains and all these beautiful like adventures I had, you know, when I needed nothing and uh, uh, just was very young and um, just very felt very free, I feel like that makes me feel really good. So I think ultimately writing about the hard stuff is good, but um, like there's this, I feel like this compulsion to like get it down um, yeah. because it can be easy to feel like it never happened or like those things don't happen or like there's, there's no place in our culture to hold space for these very real experiences. like really intense grief and um, despair and um, isolation and these different things and like getting it down makes it feel like um, it's like I'm proving that it's real or something. I don't know. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. That it happened. Yeah. Yeah. And that feels, that feels good. I, I feel like I can let it go if I just get it down then I can like let it go. But first I have to like make sure I have to like prove that those experiences are real or something like by yeah. like writing about them yeah. um, to make like a space for them, I guess to make like a space where they can live. But I don't know how much fun those parts are to read. I think <laughs> either, I think um, in, in the book, that's really like um, my intention is to have both so that there's this like lighthearted magical travel and then the hard parts give it depth and sort of ground it in um, this larger experience, I guess. Yeah. Well, I know for me, like, when I read the parts of your current book about that, I just felt an incredible intimacy with you that um, we're also friends, so I have a context to put that in. But I think that there's something about writing about that stuff that makes people feel less alone, um, if that makes any sense. Um, not just because some people may have also gone through it, but just there's a peek into the humanness of it all. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's a really good point, for sure, because we all have those experiences. And yeah, when, yeah, like when we talk about it, even if it's hard, it like makes other people feel less alone. And that's, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess that makes sense, because I love to read um, memoir, and I love to read that kind of memoir, and it makes me feel less alone in this yeah. like messy humanness yeah. we have. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about this theme of um, home and homecoming and, and finding home that comes up a lot in your writing. So in Through Hiking Will Break Your Heart, there's a lot of passages where you sort of lament, um, you know, I wish I could live here. Like, I wish I could live on the trail. I wish I could, you know, I wish this were home. I wish we could just stay here um, the whole time. And of course you can't, one, because you're constantly moving and two because the trail has an end and three you know winter's coming the seasons are changing and um I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that your search for home and if that comes through in this new book do you feel like riding the trains was also part of that search or coming up here to Alaska does any of that fit in um just talk a little bit about home for you yeah I think um until very recently uh, the only way for me to feel okay was to um, travel most of the time. Yeah. Uh, and I think, so I think I always felt this intense longing for home because I just wasn't capable of uh, staying put long enough to feel like I had a home. And um, I think it's finally, finally starting to change for me. And I'm not, I, I'm not totally sure if there's, one reason or if it's a combination of things but I think I, I'm 36 and I think getting older is a big part of it and it's a huge relief but I feel like my brain is changing mm. um or maybe it's just like um like I, I came out of my childhood with chronic PTSD and as time passes I think I start to heal more and so I think maybe I'm getting to a point now where I'm just um like healed enough that I can I don't have to travel constantly but um 
I just had this brutal anxiety that um, manifested in this way where if I stayed in one spot for very long, it started to feel, everything just started to feel like so dark. It was weird. It was like there were ghosts chasing me. And if I stood still, they would start to slowly catch up to me and there would be like more and more and more of them. And it's like everything would just be like, seem so dark, like really dark. And it's like all I would be able to see was like the really dark side of, um, you know, like the world we live in. And then as soon as I try, as soon as I was like, all right, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to move out of my house. I'm going to whatever. I'm going to ride a freight train or I'm going to hike a long distance trail or I'm going to go live in my van and trim weed or whatever. As soon as I left a place, it's like it was all gone. Like I would leave the ghost behind. I would feel great again. And I would be able to see, you know, the beauty in the world. And I would be able to see, um, like how, uh, you know, the future held great things and how different things are possible. And, um, you know, generally I'm a really positive person. And, and, and as long as I was traveling, um, I could sort of experience that. But, you know, traveling is exhausting because you don't, um, you know, if you're only in one place for max six months, you can't, um, it's, you can't invest in relationships. You can't invest in friendships. You're never there for your friends. You know, I just kind of like, was mooching off people all the time you can't contribute in the same way as you can if you live someplace like I was never the one who had a place where people could stay like I was always the one looking for a place to stay I never had like I just didn't I couldn't really offer a lot because I was always on the move and um so yeah I was you know I think for years I was just yearning for that and um like yearning for home and but I would stop and like the feeling would come back and I would just like feel so bad. And I don't know what that is. And I'm really curious if that's something that um, happens to other people too. But um, then recently in the last year, even I started to feel, um, I think in the last couple of years, I started to feel really ready. And then the last year I started making these subtle changes where um, you know, I, I was just snowboarding in Tucson every winter. And then this year I was like, I'm going to stay. And um, now I'm in like a serious partnership and it feels really good. And I don't feel like restless and crazy. And um, I don't know, it's it's starting to shift for me. And that feels really good. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, that my next question was yeah. going to be like, have you found a place that feels like home yet? And maybe Tucson is that place for you. Yeah, the, the thing is, that, that there are so many great places to live like there really are and I feel like for me the location is a little bit arbitrary yeah but as long as it you know meets some needs um it's just something I feel like it's finally changing in me where um yeah like I I, I just was ne- I was never happy living in a place ever and now I I'm living here and I feel good and um that feels really new so I'm curious to know what that is, like what happened, <laughs> or if it was just like a slow process, but yeah, yeah, home is a hard thing. Yeah. I, th- I don't think you're alone in that. Also, I wanted to say, like, I think plenty of people have talked about that need to keep moving, especially as a way of dealing with trauma. Um, and in some ways you found the perfect job, right? I, I love to tell my friends when you come visit that you're a professional through hiker. <laughs> <laughs> but you really are. So you kind of found this perfect way to 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 deal with that in a way that's, um, you know, I don't know, works for you. Yeah, and and you know, I see that a lot in the long distance hiking community too. People who um, hike like half of every year because they just can't fucking hang with yeah. life. And um, I think I think that even if one doesn't have like a lot of trauma, I think that the world we live in right now is really hard. And I think we're all very squirmy yeah. and um, we're all in the soup together and we're just fucking squirming and we're trying, like nobody wants to be in the soup and, but we're all trapped. And uh, I think, I think a lot of people are drawn to long distance hiking because it can be a way um to get out of the soup for a little while to pretend the soup doesn't exist, especially, you know, like I have like white privilege and um, I think if you're white, especially it can be an easy way to just ignore everything. <laughs> so that's also, I think, attractive too for long distance hiking is you can just um, 
pretend for a little while that, you know, you're not living in the world we're living in. It's like yeah. this beautiful illusion. And there's probably a lot of other like niche subcultures that do that for people too, that mm-hmm. provide like an escape from the world we're living in right now. Yeah. And you've started addressing that a little bit, uh, not a little bit, but in, in your work, you've, um, part, part of that is taking on that, that, um, what do you want to call it? Complacency or, um, tendency within the hiker community to want to ignore all things political. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the ways that's, that's gone over well or not well? Yeah. So, so what I've seen in the long distance hiking community is the the demographic is largely um, white folks, mostly young men or retired people because those, um, often people wait till they're retired to do a long distance hike. So it's mostly like uh, 22 year old dudes just out of college and retired white folks. Um, all of these folks being from middle to upper middle class backgrounds. Those are most of the people you see on long distance hiking trails. And um, I've noticed a lot of these folks discover long distance hiking and latch onto it as a way of living differently than the sort of Western status quo for their demographic. And they're like really, really, really liberated by that. They're like, oh, I can be free. Like they're like, I don't have to work a corporate nine to five. I don't have to make a car payment. I don't have to do X, Y, Z. I can just, you know, lay out on my backpack in the woods. And for that demographic, it's incredibly freeing because they've never experienced anything like that. They've never experienced a lifestyle that sort of bucks their status quo. This is the one thing they found. And, and then that's, that's as far as they get with that thinking process of like, oh, maybe, um, well, you know, it's like, it's kind of, a, it's, a, it's a kind of critical thinking to be like, I'm not going to work a nine to five corporate job. I'm going to live out on my backpack in the woods. But that's as far as people get. Yeah. And then if you're like, you know, maybe the reason that this feels so good for everyone is because the status quo is actually like pretty shitty. And uh, maybe we should be questioning a lot of things, you know, maybe we should be questioning, um, you know, everything about the way we live and about who gets to do what and who has access to what. And, uh, you know, so just like, I, I, so I guess my, um, I feel like I was really lucky when I was young, I fell into, um, like I moved to Portland when I was 19 and I fell in with all these straight edge anarchists and they like introduced me to all of this critical thinking that I had never been around. Never, I'd never, you know, questioned all these different things. And so I got introduced to a lot of different things and, um, I discovered, you know, there's this idea of like, um, caring about things other than what affects me personally. And at some point I discovered that and I was like, oh shit, you know, I can learn about like uh, white privilege and race and access and um, all these different things um, that uh, shape the world that we live in and yeah. determine who gets to do what. And so one thing I think about a lot is what if the long distance hiking community expanded their critical thinking out of this one thing into intersectionality and all these other issues um, because wilderness in the U S is a social construct that was created by and for um, white demographics with money. And so right. it's a place where white people can go to pretend that um it's like a land of make, make believe for white people to go and like have fun in. And so I want to critique that a little bit because I think that's really harmful. I think it's really harmful to not critique that because there's a lot of history there. There's like, you know, these lands where different wilderness areas and different land protections and who got land and what got developed is all based on the history of genocide and colonialization and et cetera, et cetera. Right. And, uh, and so these like, all these folks going out into the wilderness, these like white folks with money. Um, when you try to talk about that stuff, they become extremely angry and uh, uh, people get shut down pretty quick. And so what I try to do in my writing is I try to like encourage um, other long distance hikers to get engaged in the wider world and to question a little bit like 
why things are the way they are. And I think that's like really important. <laughs> yeah. So um, I don't really know how to um, make any sort of major change, but there's also because of social media, there's starting to be all these communities of folks that are from demographics but who are also involved in the outdoors actually have a voice for the first time ever. So there's like all these Instagram accounts and different things of like hikers of color and climbers of color and yeah. fat hikers and um, like disabled hikers and all these different things. And so there are demographics sort of starting to come into the narrative and talk about, um, you know, what they're doing and what they need and the fact that they exist and they're starting to take up space because of the internet. And that's like really awesome because so before that it's just been these like intense gatekeepers, like maintaining this like white, privileged outdoors community so that's really cool so there are a lot of people doing a lot now and it's really awesome yeah it's starting starting to shift um i notice a lot in your writing you talk about how it is you feel or or what it's like for you to be in intact wilderness or intact ecosystems um and i feel like that plays into this conversation i wonder if you would flesh this out with me just a little bit um what is it that you notice in your body or just being in, in ecosystems that are intact, have apex predators still, still in existence in them? Um, what's the difference for you? What do you, what is it? Yeah, I feel like um, this is a, yeah, this is a really good conversation because it's hard to talk about quote unquote wilderness in the U S um, because it means two really different things. Like, um, like Arctic National Wildlife, for example, is an intact wilderness, and then it has all of its original species and predators, and it, you know, hasn't been developed, and there aren't roads, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that is really unique in North America and, and the world. It's like really unique in the world. And so, on one hand, it's like that's so cool and that's so awesome. And we should protect it. And that's so important. And on the other hand, what that means is the human history, when we talk about wilderness areas, we scrub the human history from that land. So yeah. Arctic National Wildlife is the home of the Gwich'in people. And they've been there for tens of thousands of years. And yeah, among many other groups, too. Yeah. 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 Like, I don't. Yeah. Um, and when we call something wilderness in the U.S., we scrub that history away completely and we create this illusion of this sort of unspoiled wilderness that is like inherently very racist mm -hmm. um, because it, it prioritizes a sort of park for white people to play in and pretend, sort of make believe that there's this intact nature left on earth to sort of soothe themselves yeah. while um, pushing out and, you know, killing and displacing the indigenous people who were living and are still living and caring for those lands and have always cared for those lands. And then meanwhile, in the Western world, we're living a sort of lifestyle that is very heavily dependent on mining and resource extraction, um, creating waste, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we push those problems and that pollution and that waste onto communities of color all over the world so that as white people and as people in the U.S. and as people with more privilege in the U.S., we don't have to see that. So we, you know, our history is that we, you know, had a genocide against indigenous people in the U.S. and then we you know, drove people off little patches of land that we wanted to keep as these sort of playgrounds where we could pretend that something was still intact. And then we live this lifestyle that creates all this horrible stuff that we then push onto people of color. So, and then um, we leave our corporate jobs and, and spend our lives walking in these playgrounds we've created. Yes, totally. And yes. Yeah, so then we're like, Oh, we can be free from corporate America. We can play. And so it's, it's hard because it is really unique that there are any intact wildernesses left, 
But at the same time, the, to me, in my opinion, the fact that there are intact wildernesses left is arbitrary because they feel completely symbolic and mm -hmm. out of touch with what is happening in most of the planet, which, which is that there's insane development and research extraction and pollution, and it's all happening to like people of color. <laughs> um, mm. So yeah, so it's hard. And um, I also, um, I do some volunteer work in Southern Arizona along the border here, and particularly in this wilderness area called Cabeza Prieta, which is a designated wilderness area. So like Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, that's like the highest level of protection. And yeah. um, there, are, there are speed limit signs there on these. So you can't drive in Cabeza Prieta, but you can drive up to the edge of it. And you're driving through the desert on these really rough Jeep roads that are really slow going. And there are speed limit signs on these Jeep roads because there is endangered Sonoran pronghorn in this wilderness area. So there's all this infrastructure to care for these endangered pronghorn. Meanwhile, this is one, it's one of the most, um, uh, it's one of the desert corridors in Southern Arizona that is uh, most popular for people crossing the border because um, the border policies in southern Arizona force people in the, into the desert for weeks at a time in order to cross um, right. called prevention through deterrence. And the idea was that if it was dangerous to cross, people wouldn't. But people still cross because the situations they're fleeing are worse, worse than the risk. So what really happened is thousands of people started dying, and that's still happening. So Cabeza Prieta is this wilderness area that has this high level of protection and these speed limit signs for the pronghorn, and the ground is covered in human bones. And um, nobody is recovering these human bones, no government organization. The only people doing recovery for these remains are like really small organizations like No More Death and Aguilas del Desierto and these little tiny groups that have no funding and are also criminalized under the Trump administration. Like nine No More Death volunteers were recently charged um, with littering because uh, they left food and water in Cabeza Prieta. So the wilderness is so important that if you litter, you get criminal charges and they were facing 18 months in prison, but hundreds of people can die there and nobody cares. So I yeah. feel like Cabeza Prieta is sort of a good like microcosm example of the whole issue maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it really brings into relief how, um, De yeah, dehumanizing or really this wilderness area is, de is, is designated for white people only um, because you know there was yes. a, a serious effort to do an, a rescue and recovery um, for white hikers in peril. Yes, in yes. So that, yeah. yeah. So it just, it shows me that the entire outdoor community and that includes land management, management agencies and everyone who's recreating and all the media is like so deeply white supremacist. Um, yeah, because it's so clear, like who, who gets to be a human being yeah. who is seen as a human being, like pronghorn are seen as human beings or, or worthy of <laughs> protection. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Not to mention that, that, you know, the, the border is this arbitrary line drawn across ancient indigenous trade routes and people have migrated up and down, maybe not that particular wilderness area because probably wasn't the best place to migrate. You know, there yeah. were probably other routes that were safer and more well-traveled, but they've now got fences or borders, you know, uh, yeah. barriers put up. Yeah. Them. Yeah. The people crossing definitely belong there more than the white hikers. For yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So um, we got to wrap up. I'd love to, I'd love to keep talking about all this stuff. There's a lot here. And um you've mentioned a couple organizations that people can um, fund some resources to um, around this stuff. So no more deaths was one of them. Do you want to repeat? There was one other one you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, hold on. Let me Google it really quick. So I know I'm saying it right. Um, one moment. And then the other thing while you're Googling um, that, I oh, just wanted to say, so um Defend the Sacred AK is another um, uh, organization, and it's you, you donated or you raised some money for them in your hike across the the refuge up here. Um, so that's another place if people are interested in um, 
learning about the struggles that um, indigenous folks up here are going through. Um, there was a recent uh, bill passed that is gonna allow for the first time um, drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which should, should be protected from drilling. And it's in one of the most sacred places for the Gwich'in, who are uh, an indigenous group of Athabascan folks up here. Um, so that is also something worthy of uh, looking up and donating money to. Um, did, you, did you find it? Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah, Defend the Sacred AK. One thing, uh, last summer, when I was going to do this hike and I wanted to use my blog post to raise money for an org, I was really looking for a native led organization. And that's something I think is really important because uh, there are always uh, white led groups doing um, conservation work, but the people that need to be at the table in conservation work needs to be the people most affected by these issues, which is, of color and indigenous communities and um and so and it's also it's always easier for white organizations to raise funds um because white people have white networks and white folks just have more money because of the history you know of colonization right. of the u.s and yeah. so um that's something really important too that um i try to talk about in the long distance time community because some people do get really involved and they want to help with conservation work, but when it's white-led orgs, uh, those people aren't the ones who are experiencing um, the the brunt of what's happening with like resource extraction, et cetera, et cetera, and they're not the ones, like the Gwich'in um, in Arctic National Wildlife Refuge are the experts on this issue. You know, they've been there, you know, and like you said, other groups, they've been there for you know, 40,000 years or more, and they're the ones who have been fighting. And so, yeah, it's good to support the people who are there doing the work. Um, this group, Aguilas del Desierto. Okay. And they, um, what they do is they look for missing persons in the, um, on the southern border, and they actually have connections with um, people whose family members have gone missing. And so they do specific searches for specific people and um, no more deaths, um, death searches with them too. Uh, no more deaths. It's more like uh, general searches in different areas and, you know, taking out like food and water and medical supplies and Aguila del Desierto look for specific people. Gotcha. Thank you. And we'll get links to both of yeah. those up in the show notes. Um, I'm just struck as we're talking about all of this, like the, when you're talking about the need for um, indigenous folks and people of color to be at the table in these discussions, you know, another piece of intact wilderness that we never talk about is that intact wilderness actually includes humans. Um, you know, to talk about an intact wilderness system without also including the groups of humans that evolved and and survived and lived with that those ecosystems is a real blindness of white people and whiteness in a history of colonialism where we long ago divorced ourselves from our connection to the land and to the places where we lived and then we come to this colonize this new place and and kick everybody off the land and then set up these sort of fake wilderness zones totally ignoring the fact that intact wilderness itself it involves the indigenous groups that originally lived there. Like there is no other way to talk about it without also including that. And I'm just sitting here as we're talking, just like thinking about all this and being like, right, of course, of course. And then we, yeah. want, and then we want to come in and, and talk about how we're going to save it. And it's like, it shouldn't, it's not, it, it's not our, it's not our, our job is to sit down and listen um, because we've, we've already, we've already messed up enough. Yeah, and what's crazy too, something I didn't know about until recently is a lot of the people who are considered the sort of founders of conservation movements in the U.S. were deeply racist and yes. hated indigenous people and hated immigrants and yep. were just like kind of monsters. Like if they were alive today, we probably wouldn't think that they were good people. And uh and that is, that's what informed um, the conservation movements we have today. And 
um, I'm sort of realizing that conservation, if it's not really like anti-racist and really intersectional, and if it's not working really hard to center communities of color and indigenous communities, that it's actually really white supremacist, which is something I never thought about. <laughs> um, and I actually read this really terrifying article recently about this new thing called ecofascism. Ooh. Um, that really uh, drove it home for me where I was like, you know, I used to think that um, conservation movements that weren't anti-racist, they were just clueless and that it was good intentioned, but just clueless. And now I, I think I'm realizing that it's actually really deeply harmful. Um, but yeah. basically there's this new sort of alt-right movement called ecofascism, and there are people who think that um, there should be a genocide of people of color in order to save the wilderness. Anyway, it's really oh. terrible, and uh, you, you can give it a Google if you want, but, it, uh, but these folks like fit in really well with conservation as it stands currently and outdoors community as it stands currently they fit right in um right i may be going to toss belief... oh go ahead oh go ahead yeah i was gonna say i may be going to task our white listeners with googling that and uh doing their yeah. work to actually speak up and fight that um sparing our listeners of color the need to actually trump like traumatize themselves doing that so if yeah. you're listening to this and <laughs> totally. you're like, your job is actually to google that and research it and make sure that you're fighting against it yeah it, it is it does seem like it's a really small niche right now the same way that a lot of all right communities are small but also because they fit so well in with these larger sort of aims of western culture i feel like it's not hard for a small group of them to have a really large impact. And so, yeah, definitely. I think it's a good thing for white people to be really aware of and to, um, to pay attention to. And to speak <laughs> and, up against yeah. and to confront and disrupt whenever you're, you are uh, come into contact with it. Um, yeah. So all these things, uh, I like to end these by asking folks, um, what's what's the world what's the world that if you'd say you're working towards or fighting towards creating like what's the world you want to see you know I feel like I honestly have no idea what it would look like but I, I kind of I think I've kind of given up trying to imagine it um yeah. and I feel like I just have to trust that um a lot of people are trying really hard and um maybe it's not something that I can imagine maybe it's not even my place as like a white Westerner to imagine it, but that, um, that, that I have to like trust the process basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I honestly have no idea. <laughs> Honest answer. Thank you. Yeah. So um, we've mentioned a lot of links and places and um, ways you can connect with um, Carrot. So your your blog is carrotquinn.com. Is that yes. correct? Your Instagram yes. is just carrotquinn. Carrotquinn. All right. Um, any other ways people can interface with you or connect with you if they're curious about finding out about you? I think those are the two two best ways. Yeah, that's two where I put ways. that's where I put most stuff. Yeah. Okay. And if you subscribe to her blog, you can get these when she does do a hike, you can do these get these updates and they're really wonderful. It's wonderful to follow her on her journeys and just um, read along with what's going on. I, the first time you did the PCT, I had just had my son and I was trapped. I mean, I, it was a lovely, lovely time that I, summer that I was spending indoors with him as he was just a brand new baby and falling in love with him. But also I got to live vicariously through your PCT hike. Um, so while I couldn't be out in the woods, uh, I could read about you being out in the woods. So if any of you are stuck inside for the summer, um, following Carrot is almost the next best thing. <laughs> Thanks, Alice. Yeah, thank you so much for being on this and um, talking to me about all of this.
is my friend Carrot. I'm so glad you got to meet her if you didn't know about her already. Um, let's see, it's worth mentioning again. You can, I highly encourage you to check out her book, which is called Through Hiking Will Break Your Heart. I think it's available on Amazon. It is a self-published, unedited book. Um, so keep that in mind when ordering it, but it is full of beautiful things. And then if you want to follow her, you can. We'll have links to all of her um, stuff in the show notes. So a couple of notes before we go. If you like what you hear here, I would love it if you would take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or any of your podcast listening platforms of choice. If you do happen to be an iTunes listener, would you do me the incredible honor of rating and reviewing my podcast? You have to be in the Apple iTunes podcast app to do that. You click on the page for my podcast and you scroll all the way down to the bottom where you can rate... Give me five stars if you would. And then also, if you feel so inclined, give me a quick review. Um, I would sure appreciate that. It will help more people find this uh, independent media. If you are interested in becoming a patron, um, you can find our Patreon account at patreon.com slash Carr. And I want to tell you about my class, The Enchantment Practices, which you can join at the $10 and up level. It is an exploration of foundational practices for living in a connected way, where we're going to slowly be building up our capacity to be in our bodies, to be on this planet and to stay human in the face of the many crises of separation that we are currently experiencing. As with everything I do, this class is taught through a lens of deconstructing white supremacy and colonialism. You can find out more information about it on patreon.com. And also, this is a good opportunity for me to mention that I donate 10% of all of my Patreon profits to Defend the Sacred AK, which is an organization that benefits a number of different indigenous groups fighting to um, save and protect their traditional lands here in Alaska, including the Gwich'in, who are still fighting to protect the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and the birthing grounds of the porcupine caribou herd from oil drilling. Um, that fight continues. So you can donate directly to them. Or you can join my Patreon account and I will donate on your behalf. Thank you so much for joining us for this. And I will see you in the next episode of the Sacred Wheel Podcast.